Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Mark Haynes, and for the last 32 years, I've been a fan of professional wrestling. My friend Pete Donaldson from the Football Ramble, he hasn't. But in our podcast, Wrestle Me, the two of us subject the greatest spectacle in sports entertainment... WrestleMania to the kind of rigorous scrutiny that ruins it entirely. GQ called WrestleMe enrapturing. Shortlist said it's beautiful. And it's a hit with common people too, with well over 400 five-star reviews on iTunes. WrestleMe, available from all good podcast providers. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you know, listen to? Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. It's Thursday night. It's about quarter to eight. It's April the 7th, 1983, and this episode of Top of the Pops has left me and Simon Price and Neil Kulkarnay absolutely stiff in our musical televisual pants. Hey up, you pop craze youngsters, and welcome to the final part of Chart Music Six Day. I'm your host, Al Needham. Let's not fanny about. Come on, top of the pops, finish us off properly. Okay, the hottest pop party, the top 30 now. Michael Jackson's at number 30 with Beat It. In at 29, I Am I Me by Twisted Sister. 28 this week, Run For Your Life by Bucks Fizz. Mario Wilson's at 27 with Crimea River. 26, it's Garden Party and Mezzo 40. David Joseph's You Can't Hide Your Love From Me at 25. The Celtic Soul Brothers, Texas Midnight Runners at 24. And Tracy's straight in with the house that Jack built at 23. Number 22 this week, Drop the Pilot, Joan Armour Trading. And at 21, it's F.R. David with words. Words don't come easy to me. Bates, reunited with Powell on the balcony, tells us that Tracy Young comes from Chelmsford, glossing over his failure to discover her favourite football team. He's, he's at it again, isn't he? Mm. And what's he getting up there? Oh, she's from Chelmsford. Yeah, she, she's not from Detroit, in case you were wondering. I don't know. <laughs> Powell reminds us that we're at, quote, 
the hottest pop parter as he wipes his sweaty bra with one finger and launches <laughs> us into the charts from number 30 to number 21. And chaps, as is the style in this time of Top of the Pops' gestation, if you will, uh, the chart pictures are merely competent. Yeah, they are. You know, the the, the record labels have finally worked out how to put a, a decent photograph in an envelope <laughs> and, and give it to the BBC. And the only thing that stood out for me was uh, Mary Wilson. Yes. Uh, looks like she's standing in front of a gargantuan multicoloured swastika. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not one of Noel Edmonds's more successful programmes, that one. That magnificent beehive of hers as well, you know. What a hairstyle. Yes. Yeah, yeah. that's that's the only photo that stood out. And I suppose you've got Bucks Fizz in their Fox Biz mode, you know, the sort of leather mm, cap on Jay Aston. So. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, it's it's your standard promo shot of everyone, isn't it? Finally, Bates introduces the next act, F.R. David, with words. Born in Menzel, Bourguiba, Tunisia, in 1947, Elie Fatusi changed his name to Robert, or probably Robert, and relocated to Paris to begin a music career in the 60s. After a spell in the French garage band Les Boots, he went solo in 1967 and had moderate French success before switching to production in the early 70s. A few years later, he went back to performing when he formed the prog band David Explosion <laughs> before becoming... I know, it's a great name, isn't it? Before becoming Vangelis' guitarist and changing his name to Odyssey. He then joined the rock band Les Variations. I'm not saying... No, I'll do it properly. He then joined the rock band Les Variations, relocating to America as a session player when the band split up and returning to France in 1981 to start anew as a solo artist. This is the lead-off single from his 1982 solo LP of the same name, which got to number two in France, but then exploded across Europe, getting to number one in Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Italy, Norway, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland and West Germany. It finally got a UK release last month. It entered the top 40 at number 39 last week. And this week it soared 18 places to number 21. And here he is in the studio. Well, there were two words that came very easy to me when this song came up. (laughs) Both then and now. (laughs) Fucking hate this song. When I watched this episode for the first time for the for this episode of Chart Music, I reacted to this like Keith Pratt in Nuts in May when he wakes up in the morning and discovers Finger and Onky making themselves a cowboy breakfast and breaking every law of the country code. <laughs> Everything was perfect until you came along. I mean, the reason you felt like that, Al, is because you were a teenager when you first encountered this record. So, so obviously yes. the wedge was in, you know, this is not for me. But I wasn't a teenager. So this would have been fairly seamless in this episode um, for me. You know, you could say who the fuck is buying this, but the world is buying this. You know, it's a massive hit behind the Iron Curtain and all over seven continents. It's a weedy, catchy Europop number. And, and the reason it's popular, I think, is because it's got yeah. an odd touch of something 
very old about it. The melody and his massive shades mm. that kind of hint at a near blindness, they really recall Roy Orbison for me. They're yes. <laughs> very yes. old-fashioned about this. The structure of the song, the plaintiveness of the singing and the chords. It makes it very, very dated. And his tremulous vocal is very Demis Roussosh as well. Um, I don't think it's any accident that he's also, you know, working with Vangelis, as you've mentioned, doing vocals on, on his album. So for me, th- mm. this wouldn't have been a moment where I thought, oh, what the fuck is this? This has nothing to do with my vision of pop. Yeah, it says nothing to me about my life. Because <laughs> I wasn't a teenager yet. You know, the undertow of it, that synthy drumbeat that fits in with pretty much, that, that kind of fits in with pretty much everything else on this episode. So I wouldn't have seen this as a big departure. But, but certainly... Whereas I think all the other records on this episode are bought by young people, this is definitely more sort of, this is music for people who at the time probably weren't getting on with all that electronic music, but liked a good song, or or what they would call a good song anyway. And yeah, it is completely electronic. But in a bad way. Yeah, this is kind of 50s, late 50s, early 60s um, pop music with a kind of synth cape on if you like and that's why it works it appeals to you know to the kiddies and the old folks and cunts <laughs> a, a massive hit all over europe the year before simon so that this is essentially what dennis and dagmar were having a slow dance to at a, at a bernie gassed house in dusseldorf in alveda's own pet yeah i mean what this tells me is this song is that the french are simultaneously the most cool and the least cool people in europe yes right um, because they gave us Jean-Paul Belmondo and also F.R. David. Yes. And, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. This this song was... It was a punchline, wasn't it, in the playground? It was like, yeah. ha-ha, your favourite song is Words by F.R. David. Yes. I bet you love that, don't you? It really was. Uh, yeah, it was total mum-pop. In my mind, I grouped it together with La Dolce Vita by Ryan Paris. Who was, oh, that's a decent song, though. Yeah, I mean, he was I, I, Italian, I've got a, I've got a soft spot for that. Yeah, it's all right. He was Italian, not French, though he does have a French city in his name. That's how they get you, these sneaky yeah. Europeans. I, I assumed that they were both holiday hits. You know, people go mm, on holiday and they, yeah. they hear this song and they come back and buy it. But no, probably not, because we've got to remember no. we're talking about April for this this song, for words. Unless it was a big hit on uh, on the off-piste. Yeah, Après Ski or, or the or Winter Sun Resort, mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, um, uh, obviously, same as you, Al, I did a bit of a search into uh, Robert Fitusi, which actually, mm. that sounds like the word that Neil says in The Young Ones, to accidentally summon the demon dwarf, yeah. played by David Rappaport. <laughs> <laughs> pre pre les boots or les boots as you said um mm. he was in a band called uh, les trèfles which means the clovers and right. uh, they did one ep of garage garage rock type stuff and i was really fascinated by this um the lead track of it's called sontil indécent which means are they indecent and I think that's a fantastic <laughs> title yes. for a song. And I want to hear it. Um, I tried to sneakily nab it off Soul Seek. I tried to find it on, on YouTube. Nothing anywhere. I looked on Discogs. It goes for 50 quid a pop. So Fuck. like, basically, if anyone out there has got it and they want to send us a sneaky copy of it, I would love to hear Are They Indecent by The Clovers. Mm. Um, uh, and and I, I suppose that that's a, another um, comparison to Vangelis and to Demis Roussos that we mentioned in that they are associated with ultra easy listening music by the time the 80s come around but they were in Aphrodite's Child who are sort of a very kind of credible Greek progressive rock band and um, mm. Fitusi um, also had this kind of background but maybe not as sort of glorious um, it, under his own name he, he did a cover version of Strawberry Fields Forever 
Yes. But um, it's called Il est plus facile. Uh, and uh, uh, it, the, the, the way he translates the lyrics um, basically goes, it is easier to think of nothing when my eyes are closed. So it's not really the kind mm. of psychedelic swirl of no. uh, Lennon and McCartney there, is it? It's, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's sort of made it very... Very sort of normal. And uh, on the sleeve, he looks like Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords, which I find <laughs> um, quite quite appealing. Yeah, and um, <laughs> the band with the amazing name that you mentioned, David Explosion, right? Mm. Um, that was the early 70s. Uh, I, I love the uh, the sentence on the Wikipedia page. Uh, uh, David formed the progressive rock group David Explosion, but their one album was not a success. <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, I listened to Fancy one of their that. singles. I listened to one of their singles called A Bright Tomorrow, and the description progressive rock is a bit off the mark, I would say. It sounds like Gilbert O'Sullivan. Right. It's that kind of jaunty, rinky-dink kind of pop. So mm. he's, he's basically tried everything by the time... He's 36 by the time this song comes out. And he looks every year of that and just feels like, you know, complete... I mean, this this is mum pop, as I say. And he's got his mirrored aviator shades on and his his collar turned up like Cantona. Right, when I, when Eric Cantona came along, there was this idea that he was a cool footballer, right? Mm. But, and, and again, he was and he wasn't. And this comes back to the thing of the French being the most and the least cool people in Europe. Cantona turning up the collar of his Man United shirt. Yeah. I always just thought, that's so embarrassing. That's what yes. I did when I was 11, trying to be the Fonz. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yes. Now the truth comes out. You know what I mean? <laughs> Fucking yeah. hell. And like... When uh, uh, he did the old um, seagulls following the the trawler yeah, thing, yeah. Uh, which I, I never understood why that confused anyone. It was a really simple yeah. metaphor. But when he did that, and, and the media were hounding him and following him around for uh, the rest of the year, um, he yes. was wearing this awful knitwear, this brightly yes. coloured pattern knitwear thing. I thought, so this is your cool French footballer, is it? <laughs> Fuck you now. Mm. But anyway, yeah, um, it's fairly um, unambiguous with Fr David. He's just not cool whatsoever. No. One thing that struck me about this performance what is the guitar for yes he's got a guitar around his neck the whole time there's no guitar on the record perhaps he's got a bonk on (laughs) well i just thought maybe we've got to give him the benefit of the doubt here maybe he is actually subverting the format like like alan rankin of the associates or (laughs) or or kurt cobain or bob geldof or something like that you know no yeah this this song um it was the biggest selling single of 1982 in South Africa. Oh, and and if, that, if that doesn't tell you why apartheid needed to end, nothing will, really. <laughs> I mean, we've already demonstrated that you can have a Ramel single on top of the pops and still be entertained by it, but, but not here and, and not now. Well, there are the zoo wankers. There is that. Yes. I mean, the only other interesting thing about F.R. David is that he looks the spit of Grey and Bonnet of Rainbow. Yes, <laughs> but that's not going to sustain us over the next three minutes and twenty seconds of this shit song. So Michael Hurl's got a plan or two, hasn't there? Plan A is give the kids loads of gold cardboard party hats, <laughs> and Plan B is plonk two girly zoo wankers in cocktail dresses on either side of him. There's one with frizzy blonde hair and and one brunette, and you know a, a, a slight smidgen of uh, daddisfaction, but the overall effect is uh, this is what the human league would look like if they were absolutely fucking shit. <laughs> <laughs> if, if words don't come easy to you, mate, do an instrumental or hey. just dance or d- do anything but this. Fuck off. <laughs> what Michael Hulk should have done was take the Sesame Street route and had zoo wankers dressed up as giant words on legs like flouncing past him and ignoring him and just coming out of his reach. And at the end, 
three of them stand behind him and they spell out shit record, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I ate it. Those two zoo wanks. Is there anything else anyone's got to say about this appalling confection? Yes. I'm trying to. Good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Those two zoo wankers. All right, you've got the one with the black hair and the bin bag. She's basically wearing a bin bag dress. The yes. blonde one with the red frock, mm. she, right, she is Jeanette Landre. And do you know who that is? No. You've never heard of it. Well, basically, it's not surprising she looks a bit bored and pissed off by this because she was essentially a sort of goth post-punk singer. Right. Obviously, she was a zoo wanker first, but she ended up being the lead singer of The Glove, the group formed by Robert Smith and Stephen Severin. No! Yeah, because... Fucking hell! Um, when, yeah, because when, uh, basically, uh, Robert Smith, obviously, he'd been on tour as a member of the Banshees, and he was big mates with Steve Severin, and during downtime from The Cure, he would often just go and hang out with Steve Severin in London, and... Um, and they talked about making some music together. But the trouble was that Robert Smith... And obviously I know all this stuff because I'm writing a fucking book about The Cure called Curepedia, <laughs> um, which is going to come out probably next year now. He he was under contract, Robert Smith, to Polydor, and he wasn't allowed to sing on anything else that wasn't The Cure. So they had to right. bring someone in. So they brought in um, Jeanette Landre, who um, was an ex-girlfriend of Budgie, a drummer from the Banshees. Right. So she she's a yeah a sort of minor post-punk icon and and a fucking traitor as well. <laughs> being, being on Zoo. Uh, well, I think I think <laughs> Zoo, Zoo was kind of her first gig, and it's a job. But but yeah, certainly in her eyes, you can you can see her thinking, I you know this this is beneath me. It is a little shot of of kind of radio tunus in an otherwise mm. very mm-hmm. radio one episode. Exactly. Yes, um, you know, I, I suppose that has to happen. I guess, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but, 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 by the way, if we're mentioning Fr Fr David's previous musical work, Ooh. I can't let things pass without mentioning his single from 1967 called "Symphony." Um, seek it out on YouTube. Seek out a show called "Mini Show," which is a French TV show from 67, which has him doing it. It's a fucking tune, even for monkey shaggers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one interesting thing I've got to say about F.R. David, so let, let, let me get it in now. All right. So I was working in an office in the late 90s or so, and um, it was one of those offices that played Hot FM all the fucking time. So you get this kind of shit on endlessly. But this came on, and a bloke on the next desk to me just started pissing himself laughing to the point of tears coming down his face. And it's like, I've got to know why you're doing that, mate. And he told me that, when this came out in 1983, he was about 17 or so, and he had a little sister who I think was 12. And he told her when it came on, oh, that DJ's fucking thick. He's not called FR David at all. He's actually called Friar David. (laughs) (laughs) And he told her that he'd read in the paper that Friar David used to be a French monk who'd got permission off the Pope mm. to take a year off from the monastery to have a go at being a pop star. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 no, it gets better because he then said to her, you know what the song's actually about? It's about how words don't come easy to him because he took a vow of silence 10 years ago and he's just broken it to make this record. (laughs) And of course, she went off back to school and told her mates and they obviously took the piss out of her for the rest of the time she was at school. And uh, yeah, he got got severely done by his dad for lying. But what a great fucking lie that is. That is amazing. I love stories about lies you tell to little brothers and sisters about 
about pop stars. That is up there with with um, Stuart McConey inventing the old Bob Holness thing and playing sax on Baker Street. Yes. And um, the one I'm trying to get going is is that um, uh, Emily Makeless was one of Sheila's wheels. Um, so right. yeah, just anybody listen to this, just yeah, just do me a yeah. favour and spread that one about. I'm, I'm quite into that. So I'd love it if 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 somebody says that back to me and they don't realise I'm yeah. it. Mission accomplished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm hoping to happen. It's all about getting the plausibility right, isn't it? Uh, the, the only lie I ever managed to impart to someone, it wasn't pot-related, actually, but I did manage to convince someone once that um, sharks piss fire. No! <laughs> Who was that? <laughs> it was a mate's girlfriend, and she was... she was in, uh, How old was she? She was old enough to know better. She was good 16, 17, I think, at the time, but extremely credulous. Uh, I couldn't believe it worked, really. I, I hope she's not gone on through life thinking that. <laughs> I'm I'm really interested by what Neil said about having been too young to hate words by F.R. David, because you and me, mm. Al, right, we're exactly the right age to hate it. Yeah, oh, uh, definitely. <laughs> but, uh, I'm a bit unsure about so-and-so's new girlfriend. She's she's too young to hate words by F.R. David. You know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the new Len Faircloth. Yeah, yeah, that, that is quite a good gauge, good measure, actually. Because, mm. yeah, there, there is, I think, a whole younger generation now who don't have any of the baggage um, no. associated with it that we do. And they can just enjoy it as a nice, soft, melodic 80s pop song. Mm. And I think part of that's because it's used in the Oscar-winning film Call Me By Your Name. Um, right. It's playing in the scene on the transistor radio um, when... Timothy Chalamet and Esther Garrel take it in turns to go down on each other in a shed. Oh, um, how nice. And, uh, it's romantic. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, and I think it's taken on a second life after that in the same way that a lot of middle-of-the-road oldies, which used to be kind of musical contraband as far as we're concerned, mm. have been rehabilitated by things like the Avengers films and... Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy yeah. and it's always kind of interesting when that happens puts me off the fucking films though yeah yeah it's brought my enjoyment of watching people having a nosh in a shed <laughs> and presumably one you know cute YouTube comments insert film brought me here yes and yeah. also just under that I am a fetus and I like this music am I weird when music was good yes <laughs> this boys and girls is what we used to call music <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah or somebody getting it completely wrong and saying, I love the 70s. Yes. <laughs> I've just got to um, endorse uh, Niels Roy Orbison comparison, just purely so I can make yeah. just so I, I can make a final joke about F.R. David, which is that he's trying to be the big O, but he's actually the big zero. <laughs> so the following week, word soared another 13 places to number eight. And two weeks later, it began a two-week run at number two. Number fucking two. Christ. Kept away from number one by True by Spandau Ballet. The follow-up, Music, only spent a week at number 71 in June before tumbling out of the chart and he never sprayed his foul musk upon the UK (laughs) chart ever again. Get thee to a monastery. This is why I voted leave. David, and an absolutely massive hit in Europe and in this country as well. Okay, here's this week's top 20. At 20, another record from Michael Jackson called Billie Jean. At 19, Orchard Road from Leo Sayer. At 18, Two Hearts Beaters One from U2. Forest and Rock the Boat at 17 this week. At 16, Na Na Hey Kiss and Goodbye, that's Banana Rama. Nick Hayward, Whistle Down the Wind at 15, No Change. 
At 14, Blue Monday from New Order. At 13, Fields of Fire from Big Country. At 12, Rip It Up from Orange Juice. And at 11, Don't Talk To Me About Love, Altered Images. And back to this week's number 15, which is a song from a guy called Nick Hayward. He is uh, currently finishing his album, and he's also going to do a video in New Orleans in uh, just a week or two for the new single. But now listen to this, called Whistle Down the Wind. Nicky Hayward. What's happening? Pow! Surrounded by a melange of zoo wankers and actual kids, all waving little yellow top of the pops flags, places his hand on a girl's shoulder in a pervy, cool teacher manner before breaking down the chart from number 20 to number 11. The only interesting uh, pictures of note on this rundown Forrest, looking like a black Dave Lee Travis. <laughs> <laughs> and there are three band picks on the bounce where someone Scottish is wearing the same black and white plaid minute shirt. Yes. Big country, yes. orange juice, and altered images. And then Powell, um, when he's uh, naming the altered images song, he says, don't talk to me about love. Yeah. It's, I don't know why he does that intonation. It's really odd. Yeah. The other thing that struck me is that fucking New Order, Blue Monday are there. It's a great song, obviously, but it's gone up yeah. the week after the notoriously bad mm. <laughs> performance, yeah. live performance of that song. There you go, the power of Top of the Pops. And good to see the old sailor in there. Yes, of course. Paul, back with some very flouncey, frilly dress-wearing female zoo wankers, including one being grabbed at by a black male zoo wanker dressed as a cowboy in a manner that Bill Cotton would have massively disapproved of, <laughs> tells us that the next artist is about to go to New Orleans to make a video. It's Nick Haywood and Whistle Down the Wind. Born in Beckenham in 1961, Nicholas Haywood was a trainee commercial artist who had been playing in a band originally called Rugby since 1977. In 1981, under the name Haircut 100, their demo was picked up by Arista Records and were an immediate success with their debut single, Favourite Shirts, Boy Meets Girl, getting to number four for two weeks in November of that year. After peeling off three more top ten hits, Love Plus One, Fantastic Day and Be Nobody's Fool, and getting their debut LP Pelican West to number two that year, they commenced work on their first single of 1983, Whistle Down the Wind. But a split developed between Haywood and the rest of the band, leading to Haywood undergoing a period of convalescing due to the stress of leading one of the big teeny bands of the era and the rest of the band getting sick of waiting and eventually firing him. This single has been dusted off and put out as Haywood's debut release, although it's been delayed by legal action from his former bandmates who have promoted percussionist Mark Fox up to lead singer and are intending to carry on. It came out nearly a month ago, with a live appearance on the tube on its release date, entered the chart at number 43, then soared 17 places to number 26, warranting an appearance on top of the pops a fortnight ago, where Haywood, for reasons unknown, forgot or chose not to mime the opening line of the <laughs> song, which sparked no end of playground conversations and general pointing at girls who liked him and laughing at them, although it didn't stop the single jumping nine places to number 15. 
This week, it's still at number 15, and as no one wants to repeat the previous performance, here's Nick again in the studio. Oh, boys, we've not even got round to covering Haircut 100 yet, so obvious first question, how did you get on with them? Well, I mean, I'm younger than you guys, and and I... I loved Haircut 100. Pelican West was a big, big album around our way. And and I still have, how can I put it, feelings about Nick Haywood. (laughs) I think as a young uh, boy, he was one of the first to really properly suggest to me, you know, that that men could be pretty. And whereas the kind of the other pretty men in pop, and there were plenty about in this period, they were almost kind of, I don't know, desexualized by their flamboyance in a way. I mean, Adamant's an incredibly gorgeous, Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just man, but as a young kid watching him, he's so outrageous. He's not yeah. exactly, you know, approachable. Whereas Nick Haywood, because his music seemed a bit dressed down, as did he, you know, he just seemed more approachable. And he's definitely one of my one of my sort of first male crushes. And he still makes me feel, mm-hmm. you know, a bit blushy. He's like a really gorgeous ventriloquist dummy, isn't he? <laughs> That's right. Ooh, I'd, I'd get me hand up. I mean, I- giving off a chance. <laughs> Well, I'd be, I'd be massively tongue-tied meeting him to this day. And I, and I also remember that they encountered a lot of hostility haircut 100. Yeah. You know, for a lot of people, they were the moment. Because he was so good-looking and they, they all had this slickness about their look, for a lot of people, haircut 100's kind of the moment 80s pop goes wrong and it gets commercialised. But but the trouble is for me mm. with that is they make great records, you know, great singles. And Pelican West is a fantastic album. I realise now... That for someone like, say, Edwin Collins, it must have been intensely aggravating to, you know, hear these Mm. southern softies basically take the ideas of something like Postcard Records, combine it with a bit of Brit funk and make massive, massive hits out of it. But, you know, I really love Pelican West and listening back to it, as I have done in recent weeks... 
it seems to really prefigure a lot of 80s stuff, actually, more than you'd think. Remember when we were talking about, um, I think it was the colour field, I said it, that what yeah. they did was this kind of non-specific nostalgia, sort of borrowing from, from other high points across a lot of eras. Not exactly dress up, but a kind of collage of different things. I think that's exactly what's going on here. Haircut 100, you know, I loved. This song, as you say, though, is a totally different kettle of fish entirely. Mm. And, it, and it would have passed me by as a kid, as a bit bland. But now, as a grown-up, kind of, <laughs> I really like this yeah. song. I like its grand structure and its its ideas about epic, symphonic 60s pop. I, I like also the the slight Joni Mitchell influence here, especially in the sound of that bass. Although I think I have said previously, you know, um, I notice your bass guitar looks like an acoustic guitar. Would you like to help the Conservative Party win the next <laughs> election? I don't like the look of those basses, but it's a really interesting sound. And also, I do really feel for Nick here in particular because he has to deal with that perennial enemy of Top of the Pops performance, you know, a balloon. A yellow balloon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like the ghosts of his past come to haunt him in an orb. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, he's feeling the residuals definitely, but he, he deals with it well. Yes. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I still have big feelings for Nick Haywood. Hiccup 100 was one of those bands that I, as a Jam fan, were supposed to hate because Paul Weller hated them. But I couldn't. I didn't mind them at all. If Haircut 100 came on the radio, I'd be like, oh, yeah, this tune, it's all right. You know, Love Plus One's a fucking brilliant single. Mm. This would have been their next single, which would have been a major about-face for Haircut 100. I mean, the previous single would be Nobody's Fool. Almost a bit teardrop explodey, isn't it? I, I cannot see this song being done by Haircut 100. It, I don't think it would have been this slow. Mm. But, but I think it's a really good song, and I really like Nick. Everything I've heard him on, since haircut 100 days or on anything he's just really nicely self-deprecating but he still looks fucking ace we forget that in the pre-duran times nick haywood was pretty much the teeny bop icon of the era but while duran could spread the load of fan worship between them to the outside world haircut 100 were essentially nicky and the hair kens mm-hmm. <laughs> i've been reading Starlust, the uh fred and judy vomoro book about yeah, fan obsessions yeah. in the early yeah, 80s yeah. and it's fucking brilliant yes there's one lad and his female friend who torment each other over how they're never going to get to marry cheryl baker and mike nolan <laughs> uh, there's a culture club fan who's convinced that boy george is going to die at any moment yeah there's loads of lads who ring up a phone line to tell them what they'd like to do to sheena easton and Susie sue before spunking their loads on the phone and there's a glorious bit of fan fiction about having bum sex with bruce foxton in a school toilet oh i need to read that out on chart music one day but the three main objects of lust in order david bower barry manilow wow and nick haywood they reproduced some of the letters that have been sent to people, obviously gotten from the record companies, never got anywhere near the actual stars. And mm. um, one girl keeps writing to him about a fantasy of eating a sandwich made <laughs> by Nick Haywood. <laughs> I would totally fucking eat a sandwich made by Nick Haywood. Well, I don't yeah. know if you want to eat this one. Neil. It's, <laughs> it's, got, it's got a special ingredient in it. But hey, I don't know. Do what you like, Neil. It's, it's 2021. <laughs> Oh, the other great story about uh, Haircut 100 fans is that they, like Bross a few years later, a load of their fans used to congregate round uh, Nick Haywood's mum and dad's house. Oh, yeah. They'd not only give them cups of tea, but invite them up to have a guided tour of Nick Haywood's bedroom. Good Lord. Every now and then, open up his drawers and say, oh, here's some of his clean pants here. Do you want them? (laughs) 
Imagine your mum and dad giving away your pants to your fans. It's not fair to tell Neil this. Don't tell Neil. Fucking hell. I mean, the thing is, he was approachable. He looked... I mean, I'm not saying anyone remotely as good-looking as Nick Hayward went to my school, but he kind of had that approachability. He was incredibly good-looking. Mm. But you could imagine him being a, like a really good-looking lad in your year as well. He had that kind of approachability, definitely. There was actually a kid um, that um, I used to knock around with um, called called Gerard, and uh, he, was, he, he was always at the sort of same house parties as us. Um, I think we all thought he was a bit of a dick, and he wasn't particularly cool or anything. But uh, he he was the first person in Barry to learn how to do any break dancing, by the way, and uh, we just thought, oh, God, stop showing off, you're such a twat. But um, he never wanted for female attention, and I thought, what's going on there? And then I realised he looked the spitting image of Nick Hayward, and I thought, that's uh. what's going on here. It's this transference because, um, yeah, I mean, girls loved Nick Hayward, didn't they? My yeah. my my sister in law was a massive fan. She's obsessed with him. Um, hello, Kate, um, and. Um, I, I I once got a, a signed copy of uh, uh, Pelican West uh, signed by Nick because Ooh. here's where uh, Neil might swoon with jealousy. I know Nick Hayward. Oh, mate, you've got to introduce me. I would love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, um, I've, I've I've got to know him only only recently, the last sort of four or five years through a mutual friend. I first properly met him in a, at this mutual friend's birthday dinner, and I, and I was sat with Nick Hayward, sat opposite him, and he's just. Um, Everything you'd hope he would be, just a really lovely bloke and mm. really self-deprecating, as as you say. Um, but also, he's got some stories. I mean, the thing is, yeah, he was imagine. from. Now, let me get this right, Beckenham, which is part of the borough of Bromley. So he was around. He was younger than them, but he was around when the Bromley contingent were doing their thing. He was. Right. He's a bit. He's a bit of a kind of zealot of. Um, of the music scene of the late seventies, early eighties, in that he was quietly hanging around. So he, you know, he saw the sex, he saw the Sex Pistols, you know, one of their early gigs, and went went to you know the Roxy. He went to the Blitz Club, but he wasn't Fucking one of the people. Hell. Yeah, he wasn't one of the people who ever turns up in documentaries, or um, you don't see him in the footage. He was just this this quiet young London kid who was just observing and around and taking note. And um, you know, he he's he's way sort of cooler and more switched on than probably anybody would have, certainly would have given him credit for in the early 80s. And um, yeah, really lovely guy. I, I went to see him live um, two or three years ago now. And well, this is something nobody would expect from Nick Hayward. He started making knob gags. He started, no. <laughs> he's about his own penis. He was talking about his own cock. Um, right. And, and again, in a self-deprecating way, essentially, I, I, I think it was to do with kind of either either, either size or uh, performance, one or the other. Right. But doing himself down there, and and the crowd seemed to love that. <laughs> um, but uh, he also spotted me in the crowd. I don't know how he spotted my silhouette in a darkened room. I've got no idea. <laughs> but, but but what he what he said, what he, he gave me a shout out. Uh, he goes, uh, "Hi, Simon Price. Simon over there. Wow." You say some stuff on Twitter, don't you? Very brave. <laughs> Going back to whether we were on board with Haircut 100, yeah, I was. I, I wasn't supposed to be. You know, in the same, you know, you, you said yourself, being a, a Wellerite, being a jam fan, you weren't meant to be into this kind of stuff. And no. I suppose, same as me, I was, you know, I was into two tone and all that. And uh, they were sort of seen as wimps, I think. This is the yes. trouble. Um, Neil talked about them being desexualized, and I think that's exactly it, and that's their strength. Mm. And I think that was, the, in, a, in a big way, that was their influence. I think Haircut 100 are now acknowledged as being quite a big influence on the kind of cutie pop C86 
scene a, f- a few years yeah. later. Um, not so much musically as the way, just the way they, they were in the world, the way they presented themselves. The yeah. fact that, um, and they always made fun for this, the fact they, they wore their guitars quite high on their chests. Yes. They were almost like one of those Scottish bands like Orange Juice or something like that, the way they wore the guitars rather than mm. as a phallic thing. They're basically playing the guitar as high up your body as you still can to avoid yeah. it looking remotely phallic. And, yeah, that Mersey beat style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I quite like that. And favourite shirts, just a banger. What a tune that mm. is. Yeah. Again, we, you know, I was talking about the kind of uh, white funk thing of the questions. Well, favorite shirts by Haircut One Hundred absolutely nails that. That is up yes. there with um, the aforementioned again, Precious by the Jam or something like that, mm. or maybe um, Too Nice to Talk to You by the Beat or yeah, or yeah, yeah. Chart Number One by Spandau Ballet. Those mm. those cracking white funk new wave singles of of the early eighties. I would put that Haircut One Hundred single, a debut single, right up there with 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 those. I think at this point we're catching him where he he's navigating the transition from being a band frontman uh, and a bit of a pinup to being a solo artist quite yeah. well. It seems that he's going to get away with it. He got Lamold before um, it even happened to Lamold, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I guess he's kind of George Michaeling before George Michael as well. Mm. In that he's taking his yeah. music in a more mature direction and all of that kind of business. It's a damn shame that Aircut One Hundred couldn't get another album together. You're right, but you have alluded to the split that was happening in the band, and they all had different ideas. I mean, he said in an interview I read recently that, that the band were going three different ways in terms of how they wanted to take the music, and, and he yeah. wanted it all to sound bigger and wider, as he put it. Mm. Um, he, he liked Pelican West, but he said it sounded clear and crisp, but he wanted the next one to sound more like the Pale Fountains or ABC, a kind of big, expansive sound. This is an yeah. interview. Um, it's, it's on the website God is in the TV, if anyone wants to go and find it. And mm. So he wanted to go for that big sound, and he, and he worked with the right people. So first of all, he got in string arrangements from Paul Buckmaster. Now, his credits um, include... You're So Vain by Carly Simon, Without You by Nielsen, Your Song by Elton John, and Space Oddity by David Bowie. So, yeah. Uh, Well, his strings are also all over um, Sticky Fingers by the Rolling Stones. Amazing arrangements on that. Indeed. And he got in, as a producer, Jeff Emmerich. Now, Jeff Emmerich was the engineer on Revolver and Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road by the Beatles. So he was getting in people who were going to give him the sound that he wanted. Nick Hayward's a massive Beatles fan. He, He wanted this album to sound like Penny Lane or something like that. And he said, when I was working with Jeff Emmerich, I had to set aside the fact that he made my favourite pop record of all time. He made that. And I I love the fact that he, you know, Hayward had to kind of like swallow his nerves and just sort of normal with this person who, to him, made the greatest record ever made. Mm. Another influence, apparently, was Elvis Costello, big time, um, particularly the album Imperial Bedroom. He wanted that sound. Mm. And it so happened because he booked into Air Studios and they did a bit of it uh, the, the album that we're talking about is called North of a Miracle. He did a bit of it in Air Studios. It's George Martin Studio, of course, mm. um, and some of it in Abbey Road. So um, both the studios had a Beatles connection. When he was in Air Studios, Steve Naive from The Attractions, who played on Imperial Bedroom, was there, just happened to be there recording something else. Yeah. Recording, I think um, recording the album Punch the Clock with Elvis Costello and The yeah. Attractions. So um, he was literally there on hand. So Hayward was a- able to bring in the personnel that he wanted to get just a perfect sound. And it, it is a lovely sound on this record. Mm. The bassist, who Neil talks about, the, the Tory bass, the, fret- the fretless acoustic bassist who sat down with him, that is, of course, Pino Palladino. 
the overlord of the farty, fretless bass sound, who's Absolutely. who's just worked with Paul Young on No Parley, hasn't he? No Parley, particularly wherever I lay my hat, that's my home, was yes. the song that uh, made Pino Palladino, if not a household name, then certainly the name that trips off the tongue of people who know about music. Mm. And, and of course, he, he also played uh, on, on Alan Partridge's famous um, uh, air bass moment, uh, Music for Chameleons by Gary Newman. Yes. Not exactly a Barry boy, but born in Cardiff and grew up, I think, in... Panath or Dennis near Barry, so I kind yeah. of feel an attachment to him because of that. Yeah. I, I, I found it odd though that for this performance, um, they're in this kind of Meccano cube of sort of girders, or whatever you know, it's like a cube shaped thing. Mm. There's only uh, Nick Hayward and the bassist, so I thought yeah. either you've got to go the whole hog and have you know an orchestra, for, you know, you listen to the sound of the record, it's, it's very orchestral, or or just have Nick on his own. Why just have the bassist? It's really yeah. odd. Really peculiar. And it must and, be and, really and, weird for him not to have a guitar. Right he's not, there. yeah, he hasn't even got a guitar, yeah. Yeah, he's got a really nice suit on. He's a nice clean boy in a nice clean suit. Yes. It's geek chic, I suppose. He's wearing a tie clip, which is, yes. the, I was trying to think, is is there a, a less rock item of clothing than a tie clip? Mm. He's wearing it. Probably the uh, collar studs with a little chain like the snooker players <laughs> yeah. used to wear. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the gorgeous lead singer of a band who writes all the singles has gone off on his own. So, from this point, it looks like it's going to be non-stop success all the way through the 80s for Nick Haywood. Why wasn't it? I don't think he broke the top 10, did he? He had a few in the 20. Mm. I really liked Warning Sign, which was a little bit down the road from here. It was uh, yeah. a couple of years later, maybe. But it, it was it had a, it had was like a funk track, basically. I thought it was really good. And I think that was the last time he even broke the top 40 for 10 years or so. Yeah. But yeah, you'd think he had, he had everything in place. He can write songs. He's good looking. It's not as if he was being left behind by the tides of music. Cause no. Everything about him should have fit in quite nicely with the the new pop. Mm, yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a mysterious one. That. I think it's fair to say that Nick Haywood's been forced to grow up too fast for his fan base mm. here because you know when George Michael did it a few years later, he actually had the time to tip the wink to yeah. Wham fans that he was, you know, it wasn't going to be stuffing shucklecocks down his shorts forever, and <laughs> he was ready to kick on by you know having a separate solo career with uh, Careless Whisper in a different corner. But Nick Haywood clearly didn't have that luxury, and he's ready to move on, and his fan base aren't. Yeah, I mean, but crucially, I don't think Nick Haywood cared that much about that fan base. I mean, he cared about them, mm. but not in terms of maintaining them. You know, I, I normally yeah. hold it against a musician to only care about music, but I genuinely think yeah. at this time, you know, Nick Haywood did only care about the music. I'm not sure he was really that fussed about the success that all of us were kind of no. predicting him at this point, you know, as a solo artist. And consequently, there's a there's a sort of lack of drive and ambition, at least in a career sense. He's kind of focused mm. just on the music. So he's, you know, yeah. he's using all the right studios and all the right musicians to make these beautiful, beautiful <laughs> records that, that don't sell, ultimately. Yeah. In an interview with Smash It's around about this time, he talked about actually sitting down in a cafe for a head-to-head with his nemesis Weller. <laughs> They'd sniped at each other in the music press and I think they wanted to clear the air or just, you know, calm it down or whatever. But they got into an argument about lyrics because Paul Weller said, where do we go from here? Is it down to the lake? I fear. Where's your, where's your head at, Nick? And Nick Haywood just turned around and just said, well, you wrote in the city, there's a thousand things I want to say to you. What the yeah, fuck does that mean? Fair point. <laughs> Strange. I mean, one, one of the reasons this song um, and just the album as well uh, is a lot less poppy and upbeat than maybe his... Um, sort of teenage fans 
wanted it to be is he was suffering yeah. a lot with his mental health around this time you know towards yes towards the end of haircut yes. 100 he was suffering from depression and um he mm. said in an interview that i saw life was crumbling around me at the time i wrote that song and it came out in the writing and and there is there is that there, yeah. there is a, a melancholy that that comes through in this song mm. it, and this is the right uh, most times when we do chart music, there's one song when I look at the list, I think, oh, I don't remember that one. And I've got to admit, this was the one mm. for me. Um, I, I remembered him having a single called this, but I thought, oh, which one is that? Mm. And it's because it's yeah. the Hello, Hello, Hope You're Feeling Fine song. Because because yes. he doesn't yeah. sing the title, Whistle Down the Wind, till nearly the end. It's until almost a sort end. of Virginia Plain situation. Yes. But, um, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I quite like I think I like it more now than I would at the time. Yeah. It, well, it, it's a grown-up song. Haircut yeah. 100 fans are not going to dig this. No. no. i got a mate who worked at one of the venues that where he played his, his first solo tour. And he says, yeah, it was just loads of screaming girls still throwing teddy bears at him while he's trying to do Whistle Down the Wind. Oh, man. There's a melancholy to it. And I think it's down to him feeling confined by that preppy youthfulness of Haircut 100. Like like Simon says, yeah. you know, that all the tucked under the armpit guitars and the very preppy look. It's a very... Haircut 100 were a very shiny, bright, optimistic, Colgate kid thing. Um, mm. And I think Nick Haywood felt somewhat confined by that. This is a great song, Whistle Down the Wind, to bat all of that away in a way. But unfortunately, he can't make himself look like a miserable old bastard, even if he no. feels like it, because he still looks like Nick Haywood. You know, he still looks <laughs> mm. amazing. Talking of um, um, how the fans turn up with teddy bears and stuff to his gigs, um, one thing that he, he told me about was that um, some of the real hardcore fans of Haircut 100 used to turn up in... Um, yellow fireman outfits because there was a song called lemon fire brigade nice. yeah they had so there was this sort of hardcore like people in in yellow plastic helmets and stuff like that but it could have been worse right he, another thing he told me was that uh, at one of his solo gigs um just a few years ago and uh, he was in cardiff when this happened and i'm sort of strangely proud of this he, <laughs> he said that there was a couple down the front who were really clearly having sex in front of him in the audience oh <laughs> There was a what guy. song? I, that, yeah, God, I wish I... Right, we we can all fill in, like, what, what you think the funniest title, <laughs> for, you know, that he could have been doing. Fantastic was. lay. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, and apparently um, it was basically, you know, the, the guy was making eye contact with Nick oh, Hayward no. as he was shagging his <laughs> missus. Yeah, and... Uh, it was it was a fairly tightly packed crowd, so you, he couldn't see you know everything that's going on, but it was really obvious what was going mm. on. And this guy is just looking deep into Nick Hayward's eyes. As it's fucking hell! <laughs> How disturbing is that? All of this talk of him making <laughs> cock gags on stage, and now this, I, I genuinely have had to just loosen my collar to let a jet of steam out. <laughs> uh, one day, Neil, I'll introduce you definitely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do it. Why is it called Whistle Down the Wind? Because obviously that's the film mm. or novel about children who discover a fugitive who's wanted for murder who they believe to be Jesus. And I, I, yes. I can't see any connection with that in the lyrics. Did you pick up? No. No. All right, so I'll, 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 Just a good song title, yeah. isn't it? I'll ask him next time I'm having dinner with my showbiz friend, Nick Hayward. I'll, I'll ask him <laughs> what, what, what it is. Um, next time I'm having sex with my wife. In front of him. I'll ask him. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Fucking hell. Um, one thing, because obviously one, one Googles around when, when one is about to do a chart of music. Of course. I found out something that I missed at the time, but from 2017, that he was on a Channel 5 reality show 
in which he lived in a caravan for a week with Melvin Hayes of It Ain't Half Hot Mum and Don Warrington from Rising Damp. Whoa! I'm not one to normally watch Channel 5 reality shows, but when we finish recording this, I'm getting straight onto YouTube to try and find Nick Hayward, Melvin Hayes and Don Warrington. Fucking hell. So the following week, Whistle Down the Wind nipped up two places to number 13, its highest position. The follow-up, the more haircutty take that situation, got to number 11 in July, followed by Blue Hat for a Blue Day getting to number 14 in October. But he closed out 1983 with On a Sunday only getting to number 52 in December, and he'd have two more moderate top 40 hits in 1984 before having to wait 12 years for his last top 40 hit, Rollerblade getting to number 37 in January of 1996. Meanwhile, the all-new Haircut 100's first single, Primetime, only got to number 46 in August. They couldn't manage anything better and they split up a year later. Television history is contained within the box of delights. It was happening in front of us. Incredible. In our living rooms. It was amazing. Guests pick their favourite television moment and tell us why they love it. And is this the episode where Daisy's just been for the interview at the Women's Magazine? Flaps. That's it, Flaps. Yeah. Named one of Radio Time's best podcasts of the year. I don't understand people who don't see the joy in drawing the curtains, mug of hot chocolate and something nice on TV. Like, what could be nicer than that? Than having a snuggle. Exactly. Nostalgia in bite-sized chunks. Box of Delights from Great Big Owl. Time to move on with this week's Top Ten. At number ten, it's Snot Rap and Kenny Everett. Straight in at nine, the highest new entry, Church of the Poison Mind from Culture Club. Bonnie Tyler's at number eight with Total Eclipse of the Heart. At seven, ooh to be ah, it's Catch Goo Goo. Tracy Ullman's up to number six with Breakaway. No change of five, the sweet dreams are made of this from the Eurythmics. And at four, Speak Like a Child, the Style Council. At three, it's Boxer Beat from Joe Boxers. Duran Duran are at number two with Is There Something I Should Know? And a brand new number one is the godfather of rock, pop and every other kind of music. This is Let's Dance, this is David Bowie. Bates does yet another time check before Powell whips us into the top ten, settling upon this week's number one, recorded by, in Powell's words, the godfather of rock, pop, and every other kind of music, including, presumably, Gaelic mouth music. (laughs) It's Let's Dance by David Bower. We've already covered this single in chart music number 56, and as before, it's the lead cut from the LP of the same name, his first on EMI, which comes out next Friday. It's either the follow-up to Little Drummer Boy, Peace on Earth, the 1977 duet with Bing Crosby, which RCA slipped out when they knew he was leaving, and got to number three in the last chart of 1982, or... Cat People Putting Out Fire, which got to number 26 in April of last year. You decide. 
It entered the chart at number five a fortnight ago, and this week it's nudged up one place to the very summit of Mount Pop, telling is there something I should know by Duran Duran to get the fuck off its land. <laughs> and here's another opportunity to soak up the welcoming atmosphere of the Corinda Hotel and the Warrumbungle National Park in New South Wales. Uh, before we go into this record, um, fair play to Powell. He's finally shaken off the ailment of the B-bomb. <laughs> There's uh, a radio clip of him that we uh, broadcast on a previous chart music where he's um, introducing tracks from this LP. And he's not only repeatedly dropping the B-bomb, but he's actually getting it right the first time and then correcting himself to say Bowie. Oh, no. That's a triple Salco (laughs) B-bomb. Fucking hell. By the end of the year, he finally got it right when he voiced over the advert for the live video when he said, David Bowie said, let's dance. And the whole world danced. Amazing. (laughs) Of course, you know, the video to the song that you just mentioned, Little Drummer Boy, if you watch the full-length version Mm. of that, we have incontrovertible evidence of how the name is pronounced because when David Mm. Bowie knocks on Bing Crosby's door, he's like, hello, I'm David Bowie, you know. Um, Mm. So, yeah, um, there's no excuse, really. Rhymes with Snowy. Rhymes with Snowy. I'm I'm such a stickler for this. This is like this is the hill I will always die on. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a great bit in uh, in an episode of This Time with Alan Partridge. I don't know if you saw it when he's up in a Spitfire, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, right. he's obviously in the sort of passenger seat, and uh, he he says something about you know planet Earth is blue and there's nothing I can do, uh, David. Uh, and then he goes to the pilot, do you say Bowie or Bowie? And the pilot goes, <laughs> Bowie. And Partridge goes, yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> and that's obviously because we're meant to think Partridge is a really embarrassing cunt. So I love the fact that, that, um, that the Gibbons brothers, the writers of that, just slip that in there. Well, you know, Simon, me and you talked about this quite a bit in the last Christmas chart music. So, Neil... Well, hang on, hang on. Because, yeah, I, I will get out of the way, obviously, because here we, here we go a fucking again. And I do think I said almost absolutely everything I have to say about Let's Dance by David Bowie when we talked about it in Chart Music 56, yeah. which was just a few months ago. I've only got one mm. more observation to make, actually, which is that the red shoes that are fetishised yes. throughout the video are actually a bit shit and cheap-looking. I didn't say this at the time. Uh, I, I, I don't understand why they're on display in the window of the upscale shoe shop, uh, because they look well Primark. Or, or maybe, you know, for, for a more uh, 80s reference for a sort of a cheapo shit shoe shop, um, Faith or Dulcis back in the day. <laughs> Probably stitched by a child with, you know, uh, for, for one pence an hour, um, with the same skin tone in the same hemisphere as the Aboriginal. Yeah girl who ends up putting them on over her crinkly toe you remember how freaked out i was about her crinkled toe, yes. and then stamping on them because they represent western civilization and all of that yeah and her shit job yeah, yeah. so um that's what they're probably doing stopping out the window going hey i made those shoes so essentially what i'm saying is you got shit shoes on your shit shoe bastard <laughs> um so um that's all i have to add neil well, over to you the, the thing is with this song it wasn't the first 
Bowie to reach me. No. You know, the first Bowie song to get me, or the first one I was kind of cognizant of, was probably Ashes to Ashes. And the, fir- the first one to really slay me and make me think, who is this guy? I must know more about this guy and his music, was, was probably Fashion, actually. I fucking loved that song as a kid. There was something about it. But with little else to go on, really, bar the videos for Ashes to Ashes and Fashion, as a little kid, I was about seven and eight, you know, when they came out. Mm. What emerged as a little yeah. kid reading my sister's smash hits and also asking my sister about Bowie was was clearly that he'd been going a while obviously and, and what was going on with Ashes to Ashes was kind of self-referential these nods to space oddity mm. etc whereas whereas this Let's Dance which I encountered you know age 10 this wasn't seemingly just him yeah. playing to his congregation if you like this was him aiming to have a massive you know MJ style yeah. international pop smash um, because it has that big big beat in it it, it worked on me, and it still kind of works on me. It's, it, it's interesting. It's an age gap thing as well. I mean, my wife was a huge Bowie fan, grew up with him in the 70s in a way. She was six years older than me. This is the album, um, Let's Dance, and this is the single, whereby this was the moment, really, where her sort of ardour lessens a little. You know, this is where she started falling a bit out of love with Bowie. And by the by, just to note an odd little double standard in relationships, um, it's odd, isn't it, that women can tell their partners about who they fancy celeb-wise, whereas (laughs) men can't. It's an odd thing. (laughs) Yeah, or the assumption that you only like that pop star because you fancy them. Mm, Yeah. Whereas men are brave enough to say, well, I wouldn't listen to a fucking second of Britney Spears, but, you know, she'd get it. (laughs) Free Britney, by the way. Free Britney. Yes. Just got to say that. This still works on me, this track. It, 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 I, it passed the supermarket test the other day. I was in a Morrison's and this was on and I was going up and down the aisles and it was startling how many people were, you know, tapping a toe or singing along. You'd have one person doing the bass line and someone else doing the harmonies. It was nice. You know, by the by, mm. one of the reasons I don't like the neighbourhood I live in, which is an area called Charlesmore in Coventry, um, I rather unfairly characterise the people around here as the pig people of Charlesmore. <laughs> is that I, was in a, I was in a supermarket here and, and a tune came on. I think it was Janet Jackson's When I Think of You. Oh. And, you know, not one of those Banger. docile fuckers in the supermarket was even moving, which just left me staggered and disgusted, really. Oh. But, but it, yeah, I mean, it still gets me this record, but how how can I put it um, in a cold way you know it intimidates me a bit mm. as to be honest Bowie did himself in the video you know this album uh, Let's mm. Dance is perhaps too often characterised as his kind of sudden step away from art and into commerce I mean he'd made plenty of commercial music before but there is yeah. a kind of clipped control about this track and this album that I do mm. think is new to Bowie in a way there's there's an interview in the face that year in 83 where uh, Bowie says you know he, he wants something now that makes a statement in a more universal mm. international field I mean mm. he's almost talking like a marketer already yes you know I didn't get the idea from the previous time where he attempted to kind of emulate black pop i.e young americans Mm. of that of that coldness but but here i do because i mean partly his vocal is still massively bowie-esque it makes no concessions to the song or the style it's just kind of slathered Mm. over the song Um, Mm. and there's no other way of putting it really it's a very harsh song 
you know, harsh and heavy, and it doesn't really flow. It's like a series of freeze frames. And and really the whole album, once I'd got to this album, which was very late in my Bowie experience, because obviously I'd have yeah. all the great stuff first before getting bored enough to actually wonder what this album sounded like. The, the whole mm. album feels like he's not really much into music anymore. It, you know, it's recorded in 17 days, and these old collaborators like Visconti and, and Carlos Alomar, they're just sort of tre- tre- like shit and yeah. cast off, basically. So... You know, at the time, there's no denying I dug it. Um, it, it. You know, it's not exactly homage the way the the, the opening mm. to this record, those twist and shout horn blasts, yeah, but it yeah, is yeah. almost parody in a way. And this is what I mean about him not being entirely serious about music anymore. My 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 wife, who was such a huge Bowie fan, she went to see the Serious Moonlight tour, and and she always recalled it as being very, 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 very slick you know, all the hits and kind of soulless and empty inside. Um, I could never say I don't like this record. If it comes on the radio, I don't turn over. If it Mm. comes on in a supermarket, I have a whistle and I tap my feet. But I'm not sure Bowie liked this record or even cared anymore whether he liked his own records. Mm. Now, that's probably the right mindset to have if you want to be a massive international star. And I'm... I'm guessing, you know, it seems daft to say it. He must have needed the money because uh, I can only imagine the kind of yeah. debts he'd built up on the, you know, in the previous decade of, of total excess and experimentation. Going through that book, Starlust, mm. you just flick through that and you just think, fucking hell, no wonder Bowie wanted to start making music for estate agents in wine bars. <laughs> just all this mad shit being sent to him. And you just think, oh, well, fuck this. Well, yeah, I mean, it gives him that, that, that elevated sphere where he doesn't yeah. kind of have to deal with this stuff. You know, later in this decade, his career as a recording artist, certainly, it just massively falters. He's still a big star and his tours mm. always sell out. But as a recording artist post Let's Dance, you know, his career really falters. Mm. And, you know, in 97, I read an interview uh, where Bowie says that, you know, the Let's Dance album, he says uh, it only seems commercial in hindsight because it sold so many. And he says it was great in a way, but it put me in a real corner because it fucked with my integrity. Yeah. You know, and I, I kind of sort of go along with that. He's obviously gained shit tons of fans with Let's Dance, but for a lot of Bowie fans, me included, this is the point yeah. where I stopped listening, you know, and I only really come back for Black Star. I, I loved it as a kid. But the album's yeah. pretty poor. And this this is pointing towards the kind of end mm. of his relevance as a recording artist. Yeah, interesting point there, Neil, because a few months later, um, Smash Hits had review the Serious Moonlight tour in, in London. And instead of actually reviewing it, they just went up to any pop star they could find, of which there were many on a, on a fucking leg, and saying, what did you reckon to that? It was divided up into two camps. There was your frothy Bananarama types and Bucks Fizz types saying, oh, it was brilliant. This is all, this is how you do a gig nowadays. And the other half, who were people clearly influenced by Bowie, just like, what the fuck is he doing? I mean, the key quote from it was Ian McCulloch, who said, we used to look up to Bowie, now he ought to be looking up to us. I could never begrudge him his bank rage. You know, anything that sustains David Bowie is, is a good thing. <laughs> you know, he's an amazing artist and human being. But am I going to be digging out Let's Dance and recalling what a great album it is? Fuck no. Whereas something, you know, like as old as five years still hits me around the head. So I'm defo in the, in the latter camp of non-believers at this point with Bowie. Mm. I mean, as, as a live act and a recording artist, he did get a fuck of a lot worse before he got better, right? Because mm. um, 
the Never Let Me Down album and the, the tour that went with it. That that tour, the Glass Spider tour, was actually my oh. yeah, my first experience of Bowie live, and it nearly Oof. put me off. I, I just knew that. I went to see it at Wembley, and I just thought, oh, fuck this. And it was like like you were saying about this song. There's just something really cold about it. I actually made myself listen to the first. Well, I could only stick 15 minutes of it, but there's a recording of the Glass Spider tour from uh, from Roker Park in Sunderland. The reason I listened to it is because I wanted <laughs> to hear the infamous moment where he says, yes. good evening, Newcastle, to the people of Sunderland. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to find that bit. Um, but fucking hell, yeah. Um, there's a whole, a whole yeah. spoken oh, word. I wish I'd have made a metal spider now. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a whole thing. Oh, and the fucking spider's legs, man. They were like, you know, um, the rope lights you get at a, uh, a mobile disco in the old days. Yeah. <laughs> they were just like these giant rope-like legs that were supposed to look like a spider hanging over the set. It was so shit. But yeah, um, I, oh. I was listening to it, and I'd forgotten there's this whole spoken word bit at the start that's supposed to be like a future legend from the start of Diamond Dogs. It's this fucking awful, pretentious narrative about this... Well, glass spider, and I, I just, and and the audience have to stand there through that while I, Carlos Alomar, I think, is doing this sort of Hendrix esque guitar whittling mm-hmm. before Bowie actually appears. Oh fuck me, he was really taking the piss at this point. It was really, yeah. really bad. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it, it nearly put me off for life. But I will, um, in terms of the, the, the Let's Dance album being poor, um, it's yeah, I, I don't, I don't love it. I love Nile Rodgers, and I'm glad that he and Bowie. Um, did well with it but I will stand up for Modern Love I think Modern Love is uh-huh. an absolutely yeah, yeah, genius yeah, single yeah. and in a way it sums up the kind of functionality of what Bowie was doing at that time because just in the, in the bit at the start I know when to go out I know when to stay in get things done and that's what he's doing he's getting things done he's getting his career back on track you know I know a lot of people who were just just too young slightly to see Bowie in his 70s heyday. And they did only really get to see him live, even though they were huge fans of him, uh, on things like the Serious Moonlight yeah. and the Glass Spider tours. And, the, you know, all of the, these people, they were gutted that yeah. they missed out on, the, the, on, the, on him in his 70s pomp in a way. You know, my missus had really pungent memories of the Glass Spider tour. I think mm. she saw that tour at Milton Keynes Bowl. And she always remembered him coming on and her coming on <laughs> on a period I mean Bowie has that effect yeah 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 and, you know she just recalls spending the rest of her evening just increasingly pissed off with the kind of slickness and deodorised nature of it now he, he's not it was a standing f- ovulation <laughs> <laughs> does the 80s begin here with this single go on then it's, it's your theory Al. let's hear it what he does just basically sets the benchmark for the rest of the 80s, doesn't it? You know, the big advertising campaigns, album releases as, as event, and huge tours. You know, d- just bringing that American tour circuit over to Britain, saying, well, I don't have to play fucking 20 dates anymore. Yeah. I could just do a big weekend at Milton Keynes Bowl, and I've done with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, other big dinosaurs like the Stones had, had kind of already been doing that. Yeah. But I think you're right in as much as that kind of... That sense of bigness, if you like, that, that an album or a yes. tour could be like this blockbuster summer event like cinema. And, and you do get that sense of that from, from Let's Dance Onwards in the 80s with Bowie. Good. <laughs> Just going to pat myself on the back there. So Let's Dance would spend two more weeks at number one before giving way to True by Spandar Ballet. 
It would go on to sell just over 900,000 copies in the UK, making it his biggest selling single here. Two weeks later, Let's Dance the LP smashed into the album chart at number one, displacing Thriller, and would also spend three weeks there before being displaced itself by True the LP. The follow-up, a cover of China Girl, the song he wrote with Iggy Pop in 1977, got to number two, held off number one by Every Breath You Take, and he closed out 1983 when Modern Love also made it to number two in October, denied its place at number one by Karma Chameleon. We cut back to Bates and Powell, who are flanking Jule, while the other kids from Fame stand underneath them. Julie has a microphone, but neither of them are bothering to talk to her as they need to get their sign-off shit in. Bates thanks the kids, who are waving flags about, while Powell tells us it's been a good party (laughs) and hands us off to the final band of the night, Big Country, with fields of fire 400 miles. A good party. (laughs) A good party. Faint praise, yeah, yeah. Formed in Dunfermline in 1981, Big Country was put together by Stuart Adamson, formerly of the Skids, who had just split up, and Bruce Watson, a former member of Myriad Five New Wave Bands. After recruiting Mark Brzezicki and Tony Buckler from the local band On The Air, who supported the Skids on their last tour, their demo attracted the attention of Ensign Records, but they knocked them back and later signed with Mercury instead. Their debut single, Harvest Home, failed to chart in September of 1982, but they were invited to support the jam on their five-night stint at Wembley Arena in December. This single which came out in the middle of February with a picture disc version with a map of Scotland on it, which left out the Orkneys and the Shetlands, Tusk, (laughs) is the one that put them over the top, taking two weeks to crawl from number 64 to number 37, another two weeks to get to number 31, and then, aided by their debut Top of the Pops appearance, soaring 18 places to number 13. This week it stayed at number 13, but Top of the Pops clearly can't resist the skirl of the MXR Pitch Transposer 129 guitar effect, so here they are to see us off before we go. Simon, you've already made mention that Big Country stirred your Celtic heart, so come on, come on in. Yeah. Tell us all about it. Yeah, this blew me away. Um, I mean, I guess it would have been the previous performance that really snagged me in, but I do distinctly remember that in, in the same way that um, 
I went through a phase of speaking in a Scouse accent because I'd watched so much Scully and Brookside and Boys from the Black stuff, and my mum called me out on it. Um, Big Country made me want to be Scottish. I I had a severe case of haggis envy. We had hills where I come from, very steep hills. Um, Mm. Anyone who's seen the opening credits to Gavin and Stacey... That's Trinity Street. That was my walk to school every day. Very steep indeed. But we didn't have mountains. The nearest thing to Mm. a mountain in my region was the Garth, Munna the Garth, which was nine miles away. And that was a setting for that fucking awful patronising Hugh Grant film, The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill But Came Down a Mountain, the whole premise (laughs) of which is that it's not quite a mountain. For mountains, you need to go to North Wales, really. Mm. But the music of big country made me want to stand on a windswept mountainside, Mm. surveying a dramatic landscape and feeling very romantic about myself. There was something Mm. very stirring about it. I I wanted in. Um, And I I mentioned that there there were a number of uh, performances on this Top of the Pops that uh, uh, affected my dress sense. And yeah, Big Country was was one. I bought a tartan shirt and uh, big pleated trousers elasticated at the ankle and and, uh, <laughs> and and I tied a ribbon in my hair like Bonnie Prince Charlie um, nice it, the, the whole yeah the whole thing big country uh, it, it was a performance of Celticness mm. I mean mm. you can you can also see Dexies for that and there was a lot of that around in 1983 but it yes. was usually Irish or Scottish um, never the type of Celt that I was no. um, you had the alarm I suppose, who were in a similar vein, but they were from northeast Wales, D sides really, uh, which is kind of industrial rather than the mountains, and they didn't really evoke my Henrad Vanadi and all that stuff. So I went full Scottish cosplay because of big nice. country, and um, <laughs> uh, and I I. I, I ran away, and ran, ran away is an exaggeration, but I'm going to say I ran away from home to see Big Country, kind of, in the sense that I bought a ticket for their gig at Birmingham NEC. And my mum mm. knew I was going, but what she didn't know was that I had no way of getting home. So um, after the gig, I was, um, I don't know if I've told this story before, but I'm going to say it anyway. I was oh, yeah. wandering around the car park looking to hitch a ride on a coach yeah. back to Wales. And that's when I ran into their support band for yes. Cult. Yes, yes between two buses and Ian Asprey was shagging a groupie up against the side of a bus and rather than politely back away and leave them to it I said uh hi hi uh you don't know where there's a bus to Cardiff or Swansea do you and and they were like no fuck off you know so um eventually I found a bus that very kindly gave me a free lift as far as the roundabout off junction 33 of the M4 and uh, I had to phone my dad in the middle of the night to come and fetch me from there he was not pleased that's how into big country I was they inspired Inspired me to go on that mad adventure. Ian Asprey, right? D- just out of interest, w- was he wearing his white trousers? <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember that level of detail. I'm afraid. I, I don't think he he had the white trousers yet. I, in my mind, they're kind of black leather or something. But right, yeah, yeah. yeah. If uh, is that working for you, the, Al? You know, around his knees. In your mind. <laughs> They, they they were certainly you know down yeah they 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 sagged down because uh, he he was freeing his his inner wolf child let's <laughs> um, just say that yeah yeah I I think it was rock expert David Stubbs or if if it wasn't if it wasn't rock expert David Stubbs it was uh, his sidekick Simon Reynolds who wrote that Stuart Adamson's bagpipe guitar was the most useless guitar innovation ever um, I respectfully disagree um, mm. it definitely 
really stirred something within me. What he was doing, um, and you've stolen my thunder there by mentioning the uh, MXR M129 pitch transposer, mm. um, which uh, Bruce Watson also used. He, he was playing um, a Yamaha SG through through that pedal um, in the early days of Big Country's career. And um, people may have found the gimmick a bit overdone across a whole album. Um, yeah. But it it worked for me. I I had the crossing and it, it came in a lovely sleeve. It was this textured, uh, uh, embossed blue and silver sleeve, and and the album's got bagpipe guitars all over it like a rash. Mm. Um, also, lots of sha. Mm. Um, yes. that, <laughs> that was his verbal tick. Uh, like you know, Jacko had shamal, and yes. uh, Mark <laughs> Boland had yeah, or um, Larry Blackman had oh, you know, um, yeah, it was sha all over the big country record. And um, their real masterpiece, um, also on the crossing, is Chance. Yeah, which which is a song about sadness and loneliness, specifically of a woman who goes from being an abused child to an abandoned mother, and it's incredibly depressing and mm. incredibly beautiful. And the B side of that was a, a live recording from Ibrox of their cover version of "Tracks of My Tears," and right. I, I actually heard that before I heard the Miracles version. So I learned one of Smokey Robinson's greatest ever songs via Stuart Adamson. And I've got to say, he didn't do it a disservice at all. But Fields of Fire is much more kind of up and at him. Yes. Um, in, in hindsight, it's got the same DNA as Into the Valley by the Skids. Mm. Um, I think I only had a vague awareness that Stuart Adamson had even been in the Skids. Um, right. I, I, I really liked working for the Yankee... I had liked working for the Yankee mm. Dollar and Circus Games. Um but that didn't really matter to me at the time. I didn't really make a connection that Big Country were a, a new thing to me. Yeah. And then um, w- another person I know who was a big admirer of Big Country was James Dean Bradfield. Yeah. Um, I was on the Mannix tour bus after a gig at Warrington Par Hall in 1993 and Where the Roses Sown came on a tape deck, uh, which is a brilliant song um, about the Falklands War and the chasm between the patriotism whipped up by the media and the grim reality for the soldiers and their families. And James turned to me and said, if you ever tell anyone about this, I'll fucking kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's the thing. Big country was seen as embarrassing for many years. They probably still are uh, in some quarters. But you can see what James Dean Bradfield took from Stuart Adamson, that heroic style of riffing. And Mm. in fact, the Mannix sampled Stuart Adamson um, on... Motown Junk, uh, it's got a snatch of Charles by the Skids looped over and over. Right. Um, and it kind of surprises me when I look back that I was so into big country because I wasn't a rock person. This was as rock as I got. I certainly didn't, you know, mm. cross over into Twisted Sister territory. But yeah, there, there was just something about them that got me. And that's the end of my monologue about big country. I'm just going to sit here now and wait to be shot down by you telling me how nasty. Shut! <laughs> <laughs> well, ah. there, there was a lot of this kind of Celtic influence at the time we've seen it already in this episode with Dex's yeah uh, you know forging their own kind of Celtic connections I think with English Mm. bands it's different if you consider the kind of ways of immigration from the 30s to the 60s into English industrial cities it is a time where second generation immigrants like the people in Dex's they're looking for ways to connect themselves with their roots and, and also of course disconnect themselves from from Thatcherite England and those Thatcherite ideas that society erases these kind of differences 
borders and mm. that capitalism mm. can obliterate those kind of roots. But for those outside of England, you know, band, uh, bands like Big Country, for, for instance, I mean, I'm not saying it's a, it's, a, it's a nationalistic thing, but that kind of assertion of some kind of national identity is also, in a way, a contravention of, of, of Thatcherism, it, as well, even if not all of Big Country are Scottish at this point. I mean, I'm not saying that there's kind of two types of Scottish band, that's too simplistic, but it, it, if you could say that, you know, Orange Juice and Altered Images are, are small bands, you know, in a way, they're making a small sound, brilliant bands, but small bands. Mm. Big Country are much more, although not as mm. synth-based, they're much more in that kind of simple minds area of, of, of bigness. You know, everything about this record is really big. Mm. And, um, you know, also, by the way, which is something I doubt that Big Country would admit, and maybe it wasn't a direct influence, but but this song also does remind me of Thin Lizzy a bit, and the way that Ooh. Lizzy would interpolate kind of old Irish tunes into their music. A bit. I wondered if you were going to mention the Lizzie, because I thought that. Yeah, go on. Mm. I've got to admit, though, you know, at the time, um, this meant fuck all to me. But <laughs> were, I, were I a Scottish kid, or living anywhere, you know, hilly, rather than the concrete, flat jungle that I was living in, and continuously living in, I would have thought this was fucking glorious, you know. A- after the kind of postcard altered images period, this is a mm. way more brazenly proud thing than, than other Scottish bands have been. I was slightly freaked out by this because I wasn't familiar with them having a band on after the number one had played. They started doing that in 1981. Mm. Not every week, but, you know, it was it was an option. Yeah, every now and then. Mm. Of course, we, you know, for all the subtlety and sensitivity of Adamson's lyrics and songwriting, of course we get Zoo oh, God, treating yes. it with typical contempt and tastelessness, doing some fucking Scottish country yes. dancing. Well, there's two of them who are trying to do some rudimentary body popping, but it descends very quickly into status quo front line, rocking to and fro. <laughs> it's also very noticeable that one person very much struggling to dance to big country is is Leroy. Yeah. <laughs> he really cannot get his steps right. No. But also, I mean, you know, ultimately big country in a way, and I don't mean this in a kind of derogatory way, they're just not for me. And, and this record isn't. But I can imagine how for various kids around the country, especially those in the Celtic fringes, it were, this would have been a big, big moment. Mm. Sadly, the one great Scottish single that got nowhere near the charts over the Sea by Jesse Ray. Fucking oh, yes. hell. I look at that and I fucking curse myself for being English. He's essentially full-on Braveheart, standing with Bernie Worrell out of Funkadelic, with a, who's got a keytar on, on top of the World Trade Centre, swinging a claymore around, which flies all the way to Scotland and just embeds itself next to some heather. You're essentially being sprayed down by a water cannon filled with iron brew. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it's a shame we haven't got rock expert David Stubbs here because I know he's a massive uh, Jesse Ray fan, and yeah. he, you know, and he doesn't see him as a novelty act. He sees him as a, you know a, a proper avant-garde artist. Or yeah, yeah, which he is. Yeah, <laughs> fucking brilliant. If that had been on top of the pops, Jesus Christ! We should remember, you know, this is still the era when Scottish people turning on the national broadcaster are still getting, you know, Russ Abbott and shit like that and those yes. kind of characterisations. So I can totally understand how this might have, and must have felt massively righteous. In some ways, the Scots do buy into their own caricature. Um, I don't know if you heard about this, but um, at the Euros, um, Scotland's uh, sadly short-lived uh, uh, visit to the Euros, um, they, they disobeyed Delamitri and they did come home too soon. <laughs> um, it involved, um, uh, as, as a sort of little warm-up to, to get them going, um, the captain, Andy Robertson, 
arranged for a, a gift pack to be sent to all the players um, containing loads of stereotypically Scottish stuff. And it, <laughs> it included a, a can of Iron Brew, and it's like, for fuck's sake, you know, <laughs> you're not doing yourself any favours here. Anything else to say about this? I just want to praise you yeah. like I should, Al, for actually having a crack at pronouncing the drummer's name, because in Smash Hits, he was always Mark Unpronounceable Name. Oh, you gotta get that? it wrong. No, no, no. I mean, well, I don't know. I'm not Polish. I think it's a Polish Rizicki. name, isn't it? But yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I do my best. <laughs> yeah, well done. Well done. Yeah. Give yourself a pat on the back. So the following week, Fields of Fire jumped up three places to number 10, its highest position. The follow-up, In a Big Country, got to number 17 in June, and their final release of 1983, Chance, got to number 9 in October. They go on to have 10 more top 40 hits, two of which made the top 10 before splitting up in 2000. And Friday Night Live version would get to number 13 in May of this year, but the follow-up, Body Language, would only get to number 76 in June, the last dent that the kids from fame would make on the car roof of the UK chart. A week after this episode, NBC announced that it was cancelling fame, but due to its massive popularity in the UK and elsewhere, it was picked up by LBS Communications and lived on for four more series. Which isn't quite forever, but it would do. And that, Pop Craze Youngsters, closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One kicks on with the Kenny Everett television show. Then it's part six of The Paras, the documentary series about the recruits of 480 platoon as they're transferred to Wales and wonder if they're going to get called up to the Falklands. After the nine o'clock news, it's the first part of The Jure, a drama series about the private lives of the 12 members of a jure and how they tackle the case that's been set before them. Then they finish off with Question Time, 10 Million People, the magazine show for the Oldens, and the news headlines and weather. That's on a bit too late for the Oldens, isn't it? <laughs> BBC Two has started part four of the history series Karl Marx, The Legacy. Yes. Then Grace Kennedy sees the singer teaming up with Peter Skellen and Sue Pollard. After the medical series A Gentle Way with Cancer, it's the second part of Dancers, a series of plays set in the world of dance. <laughs> then it's News Night, more open university, and they shut down at a quarter to one. ITV is giving over the whole evening to Channel 4 output in an attempt to show ITV viewers that the new channel isn't all Lenin bombing a Rastafarian. <laughs> so they put on Father's Day, a preview of the new Channel 4 sitcom starring John Alderton, then a repeat of the Jack Rosenthal TV film Patang Yang Kipperbang about first love and cricket. That's where the lad puts on the boxing gloves to stop himself from wanking, like <laughs> like the zoo wankers did in Boxer Beat. <laughs> After the news at 10, it's Cheers, followed by the 1981 documentary Personal History of the Australian Surf, and they close down with Portraits of a Legend, with Petula Clark banging on about her career. Channel 4 has just started Dancing Man, a one-man showcase from the Canadian huffer Jeff Hislop. Then TVI changes channel for the night for a one-hour special. 
That's followed by the 1955 Catherine Hepburn film Summer Madness, What the Papers Say, and they close down at midnight. One thing that really struck me about um, those TV listings is how many dance-related programmes there yes. are. It just shows that fame was so in touch with the zeitgeist at the time. Because, yeah, you had Dancing Man, you had Dancers, and uh, earlier on on Channel mm. 4 there had been Masters of Tap. So it's yeah, yes. just you couldn't couldn't get away from it. Another thing mm. was yeah, Karl Marx: The Legacy Part Four, which is yes. running directly opposite Top of the Pops on BBC Two. I love the fact <laughs> that the BBC at that point was just sort of you know uh, espousing Marxism or certainly explaining Marxism to uh, a sort of early evening audience, albeit um, one where young people would probably be watching the other side. You just, you just wouldn't get that now, I don't oh, think. I miss, I miss old Channel 4. Well, that, that early Channel 4 output, you mentioned Patang Yang Kippabang. Those films, mm. those sort of um, self-made Channel 4 films um, uh, at that time were, were really important, I think. Um, mm. re- really kind of um, an, an eye-opener. Um, the, they, they were usually set in Britain and they, they, they sort of had... Kitchen sink realism themes that you you wouldn't normally get on. You certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have got on ITV's normal output. And um, mm-hmm. I remember that they were definitely something you'd stay up late for, also because you might see some tits, I suppose. But there was always yes, that, yeah. Um, and <laughs> and as as, uh, as critics ourselves, obviously we don't believe that success proves you wrong if you dislike something. However, mm. Cheers was described in the in the listings as a, yes. a lukewarm American effort about a drink spa. <laughs> Fucking hell. Mm. Boy, yeah. <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? Would, would we have seen Cheers if it wasn't for Channel 4? Yeah. I mean, Central might have picked it up. They were quite go-ahead. I, I think, you know what? It would have come to occupy the slot that MASH mm, yeah, occupied yeah, on yeah, BBC yeah. 2, maybe. Um... But I'm not sure it would have been as popular as it was no. for BBC Two. And just to echo what Simon says about there being so many dance options uh, on the telly, I would argue that fame isn't just tapping into that zeitgeist, zeitgeist but actually created it, you know, in a big, big way. The, the show I remember that leaps out to me from those listings is Paras, which, which you know, post-Fortlands, one would imagine some sort of triumphalist show about the British Army, but fuck me, watch that show. You will never want to be in the fucking army, you know, ever in your life. It's Even basic training looks horrific. We got the army coming round all the time. All the, all the armed forces would come round to our school and give presentations. Yeah. Round about, you know, when we started being fourth years. That was our career option. You know, no one from a university ever came round to my school and said, have you considered doing this? Yeah, similar to us. Yeah. We we, we had an air base nearby, RAF St. Athen. It was a similar thing, you know, careers day and everything. Would you like to be in the RAF? And yeah, we're watching these planes getting shot down over the South Atlantic. Like, fuck that. Mm. Thank you very much. No. So, yeah, this episode of Top of the Pops, ultimately mm. imperfect, but I, I feel it came so fucking close. It's satisfying. It's just really satisfying. Mm. That's the word. So, if I were to hand this week's charts over to you and ask you to rebook this episode under strict Top of the Pops rules, what's coming out? What's going in? Well, I'd keep um, Dex's. I'd keep MJ. I'd get Orange Juice in. Mm-hmm. Um, I get altered images in there just because mm. I will never ever not fancy Claire Grogan, but also I love that record. The ten-year-old kid in me would also probably get Kenny Everett yeah. on, and another sort of shameless I fancied a thing. I'd probably get Tracy Ullman in there. 
as well. And if we're allowing, you know, things just bubbling outside of the charts, could we not get Man Parish in there? Oh, that's just gone down. Yeah, that's a shame. That's a shame. But it's a cracking chart, and this episode very, very nearly reflects it. Mm. I've um, I've put a lot of thought into this because I've got nothing better to do, right? So um, I've I've come up with a um, an alternate episode of this because the rules, of course, being that. You can't have anything that was on the previous week, and uh, it's got to be at least standing yeah. still in the charts or going up. But but you can have things from outside mm. the, the thirty or the forty because they are, they often did. Yes. So I've I've taken that and run with it. Right. So here we go. Presenters: Janice Long and Tommy Vance. Right. Janice because she's lovely, and Tommy because he's hilarious. Nice. Right? Ten songs because that's about the yes. average at this time. Um, but I've gone a bit rogue. Okay. Because you said we could have stuff from outside the top four, nice. and I've taken that and run with it. Because in my alternate universe, TOTP, there are only two songs from the top 40, and, and only one from the top <laughs> nice. 30, in fact. So, right, to start off, on its way to being yeah. a massive hit second time around, I'd have Eurythmics, Love is a Stranger, um, which I far prefer to the hit that broke them, Sweet Dreams. Mm. Just outside the 40... I would have this Bauhaus with their goth dub masterpiece, She's in Parties. And I show the video of that because it mm. features that classic 80s trope, a swinging light bulb. Uh, Got to have that in there. Um, yes. I'd have Grace Jones with My Jamaican Guy. Um, always good yes. to have a bit of Grace for the sheer terror of it. And uh, Video all live. Um, uh, now, have her in the studio because cause you want to see yes. you want to see the faces of the of the audience. Like, uh Jesus yes. Christ, yeah. Um, yeah, Hell of a Tune, sampled, of course, in the 90s by LL Cool J on doing it. Yes. So it's Sly and Robbie, of course, but it's all about Wally Badaru's keyboards on that record. Mm. That would have brought some real class to the, my fictional TOTP, I think. Um, this one was in the top 40 just about, Kissing the Pink, the last film, a bit of uh, right. movie new wave art pop there. Um, oh, God, yes. I'd have a bit of American soft rock for the dads in the shape of Rosanna by Toto which is outside right. there. Now, in Babelog, Patty Smith says, well, I haven't fucked much with the past, but i fucked plenty with the future. I've done the opposite here. I've <laughs> fucked with the past and made stars out of two artists who Ooh. never did become stars, but were lurking outside the 40, right? The Ooh. first one is The Farmer's Boys with Muck It Out. Now, I don't know if you know that. Right. It's this insanely dramatic electro-funk epic. It's huge. Everyone thinks The Farmer's Boys must be a kind of twee little indie pop band. And they sort of were a lot of mm. the time. The name doesn't help, The Farmer's Boys. No. But, but Muck It Out is a monster. We will never talk about it on chart music again because it never became a hit. But mm. I'm just begging the pop-crazed youngsters to put it on loud. Um, that's really a really mm. good record. Video yeah, yeah. play. The other non-stars I've made stars are Vicious Pink Phenomena, um, right. with with their eight-minute version of Je T'aime One En Plus. We'd have to show an edit, obviously. Um, they were a duo best known as Soft Cells Backing Singers, and this is produced by Dave Ball. It's honestly yeah. not very good. It's very upbeat and cheesy as a cover of Je T'aime, but it would tee them up nicely for their brilliant electro-goth singles, Kakaka Can't You See and Fetish, uh, which should have been hit. Mm. The other way I've fucked with the past is by essentially killing Hitler, metaphorically speaking. Mm -hmm. The Valentine Brothers original of Money's Too Tight to Mention is new in at 99, right? Right. And uh, (laughs) if if we'd made that a hit, preempting Simply Red, Simply Red might never have happened. I'm not comparing Mick Hucknall to Hitler. I actually don't mind a bit of Simply Red sometimes, but it's just a nice kind of 
alternate timeline that might have happened. And I'd show Prince doing a little red Corvette. Of course. Or little SOS, as my mate Sharon thought it was. <laughs> which which was um, in at 95. 95. Um, it might have kicked off my Prince phase a whole year early instead of waiting around for Purple Rain to happen. Yeah. And uh, in my counterfactual timeline, there's a song at number one which only got to number seven in real life. Neil's mentioned it. It's Altered Images, Don't Talk to Me About Love, mm. which basically um, does the double of uh, white, sort of independent-minded acts of the early 80s drawing upon black disco, in that it's influenced yeah. both by Donna Summer, I Feel Love, and by Chic. You've got both things going on there. It's mm. a fantastic single. And I would watch the shit out of this fictional episode of mine. It might actually be in my top five greatest episodes ever if it existed. Um, what I wanted to do, like you, Neil, I wanted hip-hop, bebop, Don't Stop by Man Parishin. I might have put the video on, but the video's fucking... Have you seen the video? It's mental. It's gay as knickers <laughs> and mad. I always had this image of some breakdancing lads, you know, doing a proper shift in the shopping precinct on a Saturday afternoon, knowing that the video for Hip Hop Bebop Don't Stop's going to be on Switch or Airsay on Channel 4 and just gagging to see it because you think they're going to pick up some fresh breakdancing moves. And then they see this, which is just lots of lads being gay, and then someone turns up as a Doctor Who monster and starts dancing with them <laughs> in a non-breakdancing way it's insane so um i probably wouldn't have used the video but i would have brought some actual breakdancers in i would not have left it yeah you've got to get zoo out of the fucking building yes basically make sure that when they're doing this scottish dancing to big country there are some actual crossed swords under their feet (laughs) and they slash themselves up (laughs) i'd bring some breakdancers into the studio rather in the manner that they did in 1975 when they got some actual Northern Soul dancers in to dance to Futsa, yeah. which is an incredible bit wow. of footage. But anyway, I don't know what I'm talking about that for because it's not allowed. <laughs> so I would leave everything up to Trace as it is. I'd replace that with my Jamaican guy. Oh, yeah. And at the end, I would have been tempted to take out Big Country and let the kids from fame do Friday night because they're there. Yeah. And it'll be something to have in the can later on when it gets into the top 40. But but it's, it's a live version, so it's a complete non-starter. So I would tell Friar David that he had to perform <laughs> in a monk's cow with some dancing words around him in the hope that he'd fuck off. And in his place, you've got to put something a bit novelty in. Mm. I did think about Brontosaurus, Will You Wait For Me, by David Bellamy, which is currently at number 88. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Oh but with my BBC head on, I, I thought, no, let's let's go even more BBC and go for Nora Batty Stockings by Compo <laughs> and Nora Batty, backed Jeez. by Rodney Hazelhurst's as orchestra. <laughs> That's quite the tune, man. Kathy Staff just spits out bars, guy. Oh, my God. Imagine them in the studio. The younger kids would get a bit of a chuckle out of it. The old ones would be able to see themselves represented on top of the pops. <laughs> I think it's an all-round winner. Yeah, Kathy Staff never spat a whack verse, ever. <laughs> so, dear boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? I went to an all-boys school, so I can tell you that there was quite a lot of talk about Tracy. Um, yes. And also, for very different reasons, about Twisted Sister. Um, Joe Boxers zoo wankers but to be honest with you twisted sister would be the Mm. two words on everyone's lips in the playground the following morning what a performance and what are we buying on saturday fucking most of it no um um dexy's already had the album uh so not that but culture club 
Joe Boxers and Big Country. Mm. Um, probably all of them bar Big Country, which didn't float my boat. And what does this episode tell us about April of 1983? If I was a comedy 1980s stockbroker with a massive phone, um, I'd be shouting, <laughs> buy blusher for blokes, buy tartan, <laughs> buy string vests, and sell dungarees. <laughs> what it says, it, it kind of suggests a lie in a way. What it's saying is kind of everything's fine. Yeah. In, in fact, perhaps things are even going to get better. But, you know, underneath everything, perhaps what is actually number one points the way forward more than anything else in this episode. And that, Pop Craze Youngsters, brings us to the end of this episode of Chart Music. All that remains for me to do now is the usual promotional flange, so that's www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at chartmusictotp. Jingly jingly money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chart music. God bless you, Neil Kulkane. Thank you, Simon Price. And Bancroft. Hoylvau Dabochi. My name's Al Needham, and I'm not waiting for approval from you. <laughs> chart music. Hello, it's Mr. P here. And the other Mr. P. And we are the hosts of Two Mr. P's in a Podcast. The educational podcast where you don't actually learn a thing. No, instead we explore the weird, wonderful and downright hilarious things that happen in school from people actually doing the job. We reminisce on our own time at school, funny things we experience each day. And of course, we share your hilarious stories from the chalk face. So if you work in a school or just want a nostalgic trip down memory lane, sit up straight, fingers on lips, and get ready for the lesson. Nora! Oh, it's not you again, is it? Get off me steps! Here, hold me ferrets. I've got something to tell you. Oh, I'm mad about thee, Nora. I've loved thee all my life. Of course, I'm very glad that you are someone else's wife. But there's one thing about me that sends me up the wall. Of course, it's confidential, so I won't tell us all. I just can't stand them awful wrinkled stockings. Ah, just shut your mouth. What will the neighbours think? It's like they've had a perm. They make you look infirm. Or else you're going fishing, and that's where you keep your worms. I will not have you talk about me stockings. Should be put away. I see your knickers on the line and passion sends me reading. But when I see them stockings, oh, I kind of lose the feeling. Be off with you or else there's something else that you'll be feeling. Now, Dora, put that yard brush down. Go put it down, will you? Get away, you will weird. Oh, oh, Go on, oh, get off. Oh, oh, I just can't stand them awful wrinkled stockings. Oh, get off me steps, you're always talking legs. Please pull them up, I beg. I heard from Norman Clegg. He says you've not got wrinkled stockings, you've got wrinkled legs. Will you stop going on about me stockings? It must be cramp or rising damp, I'm sure. If your elastic's getting slack, then see the doc about it. He'll tell you, tie them up with string when you walk round the houses. Here, you can have this piece of rope, what's holding up me trousers. Oh, Oops. your trousers oh. are falling down. Don't worry, don't worry, Nora. I'll play the ukulele. Listen to this.
but David Stubbs. Hi, I'm David Stubbs, rock expert David Stubbs, bringing you a hard rock expert David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs, bringing you a hard-driving, hard-hitting mix of hard rock and hard facts. Today, I want to talk to you about the Glam Daddies, the rockamost of the toppermost, Twisted Sister. That's T-W-S-S-I-D. S-T-D. Hey, hey, we're not here to spell. We're here to rock. Twisted Sister, man, they suffered for their art. They had to put up with jibes more twisted than any sister. And as a dude who had a nine-year-old sister in 1983, I can tell you, sisters are pretty twisted. Nancy Spungen, they said, about Dee Snyder. Hurtful. But Vera Duckworth? Vera Duckworth? Vera Duckworth? Vera Duckworth? He's a rolling and rocking and rocking and rolling rock expert, David Stubbs. Fear Duckworth! Man, that's cruel. Everyone can relate to I am, I'm me, catalog number 6743246666. That's 6743246666. Why, when they bust this out on top of the pops, the tremors of that bass line literally shook the foundations of suburban houses in Kettering. We can relate to it, you see. I am. I am too. Are you? We all am. And I'm me. And Dee Schneider was Dee Schneider, and not Vera Duckworth! They had further hits. The kids are back. You can't stop rock and roll. We're not gonna take it. And in 1987, their biggest hit, Breakout. Breakout, do do do. A change of image but they still delivered the goods. Join me next time for more hard rock and hard facts from the man who knows. Meanwhile, take it away, Al! Rockin' and rollin', rollin' and rockin', rockin' and rollin' and rockin'! If you want to hear more from me, rock expert David Stubbs, subscribe to me on YouTube. Address HTTPS. Full colon slash slash www.youtube.com slash watch question mark v equals q k l e h dash o o f d eight m percent t equals one three four s.